I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 1, Chapter 12, The Poems. Did Shakespeare write more than plays and sonnets? Yes, he wrote other poems. Today's podcast will be a brief review of them. Venus and Adonis, a narrative poem written in 1592-93 and first printed in 1593, became the most popular of Shakespeare's works during his lifetime. It appeared in about ten editions by 1602, and six more soon after Shakespeare's death. Why was it so popular? Because then, as now, sex sells. And the poem is an exercise in a form of erotic poetry based on Greek and Roman mythology that was very popular among young aristocrats and therefore was often produced by poets who wanted the patronage of those aristocrats. Christopher Marlowe wrote one called Hero and Leander that became similarly popular. Some critics believe that Shakespeare had seen Marlowe's poem in manuscript and was influenced by it, others that Marlowe's poem was influenced by Shakespeare's. Venus and Adonis is written in stanzas of six iambic pentameter lines forming a quatrain and a couplet, A, B, A, B, C, C, a stanza used previously by Thomas Lodge in Scylla's Metamorphosis, 1589. The source for the story is Ovid's Metamorphoses, Book 10, with elements from Book 3, Salmachus and Hermaphroditus, and 4, Echo and Narcissus. The poem was dedicated to the Earl of Southampton, to whom the sonnets may also have been dedicated. The poem tells the story of the irresistible erotic love of Venus for the beautiful boy Adonis, who was interested in hunting wild animals, but not in love, even the love of the goddess of love and beauty. For a change, the goddess is tormented by the mortal, rather than the other way around. The poem is an elaborate series of suggestive descriptions of the approach-avoidance of the two, along with speeches on the value of reproduction and the attractions of love, and on the dangers of love and the attractions of hunting. The ending turns tragic when Adonis, abandoning the goddess, is killed by the boar he is hunting. It is not safe to refuse a goddess in love. The Rape of Lucrece, 1594, Another narrative poem is also, like Venus and Adonis, dedicated to the Earl of Southampton, to whom, in the dedication to the earlier poem, Shakespeare had promised a graver labor, a promise this poem, no doubt, fulfilled. Its dedication is more personal, and its subject is more serious. It was also popular, appearing in six editions before Shakespeare's death. The verse is rhyme royal, that is, stanzas of seven iambic pentameter lines, each with the interlocking rhyme scheme A, B, A, B, B, C, C. It is the form of stanza Chaucer used in Troilus and Cresseida, about 1385, and the one, as Hallett Smith says, recommended in the critical treatises for tragic matters, complaints, and testaments. It is also used in A Lover's Complaint, which I will discuss in a moment. 
The Rape of Lucrece is indeed an elaboration of the complaint style of poem into a complete tragic tale. It begins, like many tragic narratives, by plunging us in medias race, into the middle of things, and it climaxes with suicide. In the story, the evil Tarquin, inflamed by lust for the virtuous and married Lucrece, threatens her not only with death, if she will not yield to him, but with the dishonor of putting her dead body into the arms of a slave he will kill for the purpose, thereby destroying her reputation for virtue. She pleads unsuccessfully and is raped. When her husband returns, she tells the whole story and then kills herself. The plot comes from Livy's History of Rome, Book 1, paragraphs 56 to 60, and from Ovid's Fasti, Book 2, lines 711 to 852, and is retold in Chaucer's Legend of Good Women, Painter's Palace of Pleasure, 1566 to 67, a Bandello novella, and Belforest's translation of Bandello in Histoire Tragique, all of which Shakespeare probably knew. At lines 1366 to 1568, Shakespeare includes a digression into the matter of Troy, that is, the subject of the war between the Greeks and the Trojans over Helen, and the grief of Hecuba, queen of Troy, to which he will return in Hamlet, Act 2, Scene 2. Hallett Smith also points out a strong parallel between lines 162 to 168 and Macbeth's evocation of the image of Tarquin in Macbeth. Act 2, Scene 1, lines 49 to 56. In general, in The Rape of Lucrece, we can see Shakespeare at work developing the dramatic scenes, imagery, dialogue, and language that will later serve him well in the tragedies written at the peak of his career. Of all the works of Shakespeare, the short poem called The Phoenix and the Turtle is the most mystical. There is nothing else like it in Shakespeare, though the epilogue to The Tempest aims at a similar unification of levels of meaning. It is a love poem, in the form of an allegory, about a love that transcends the body and the world and the lifespans of the lovers. According to myth, there was only one phoenix alive at any time, and it was said to be beautiful. Shakespeare often identifies rarity with excellence and beauty, as in Sonnet 130. The phoenix lived a long time, some say 500 years, and then died on a funeral pyre, out of whose ashes the new phoenix would arise to new life. The turtle, from the Latin tortur, turtle dove, not from the French tortue, tortoise, which is derived from Tartarus, symbolized fidelity and constancy in love. Following in the tradition of making allegorical poems about birds, Shakespeare unites these two seemingly incompatible beings, marrying them to one another in a union of beauty and fidelity in which division is abolished, and celebrating them in a dirge or requiem, their death having removed truth and beauty from the world. The poem is made of thirteen stanzas of four lines each, plus five stanzas of three lines each, the meter being 
trochaic tetrameter catalectic, meaning four troches, bumpa, with the last syllable cut off from the Greek catalectikos. An introductory voice invites various birds to join in the ceremony of mourning the dead, excluding the screech owl, which foretells death, and all birds of prey except the eagle, king of the birds. Together they sing the anthem, which praises the union of the phoenix and the turtle in a series of paradoxical statements that under normal conditions would make no sense. The anthem ends by quoting Reason, who composes the last section of the poem called the threen, or threnos, the Greek form of the word threnody, or funeral song, which mourns the deaths of the two birds who were one, now at rest in eternity, at which we are invited to sigh a prayer. At the end of the first edition of Shakespeare's Sonnets, 1609, appears a poem explicitly ascribed to Shakespeare, called A Lover's Complaint. It is an example of the complaint style of poem mentioned earlier, a literary form popular among the Elizabethans, in which a young woman laments her downfall, here resulting from seduction by a false lover. As in The Rape of Lucrece, which may be read as another example of the complaint poem, the verse form is rhyme royal, seven lines of iambic pentameter verse rhyming A, B, A, B, B, C, C. The style of the complaint poems, including this one, is highly rhetorical. Other Elizabethan examples of the form include two that were similarly attached to a sonnet sequence, the complaint of Rosamund by Samuel Daniel, 1592, and the complaint of Elstrid, by Thomas Lodge, 1593. As Robert Giroux writes, the poem is a joke, a fact mentioned by none of its critics. Giroux is right, but he gets the tone of the joke wrong, claiming that at the end of the tale of the woman's betrayal by the handsome seducer, quote, she realizes that she wants it to happen again. Giroux's misreading is based on taking the five that's in the final stanza for subordinate conjunctions rather than for the demonstrative adjectives they are. The woman cries, Oh, that infected moisture of his eye! Oh, that false fire which in his cheek so glowed! Oh, that forced thunder from his heart did fly! Oh, that sad breath his spongy lungs bestowed! Oh, all that borrowed motion seeming owed would yet again betray the forebetrayed and new pervert a reconciled maid. Lines 323 to 329. Reconciled means repentant. She is not saying, oh, that he would seduce me again, meaning I wish he would, but, oh, those qualities of his would seduce me again, meaning, if he were to try, I would not be able to resist. In any case, the joke, which Giroux says could be called black humor, lies in the reversal of the reader's expectations. We expect the betrayed maiden's anguish to be final, but at the end she reiterates the impossibility of resisting seduction 
by such a handsome and persuasive young man and would fall again if given the opportunity. Shakespeare's authorship of A Lover's Complaint and the date of composition have been significantly disputed. Brian Vickers argues that the poem is by an imitator of Spencer and Shakespeare named John Davies of Hereford, not to be confused with the Renaissance poet Sir John Davies. John Davies of Hereford was a writing master and author of various philosophical and theological prose works who, as I mentioned in the podcast of Chapter 2 on Shakespeare the Man, called Shakespeare goodwill, generous in mind and mood, a sower of honesty, worthy to be companion to a king. Vickers' arguments are highly technical, but the main thematic argument is that Shakespeare generally sympathizes with the wronged maiden and condemns the betraying lover, whereas here it is illicit eros and feminine surrender rather than virtue and chastity that have the last word. In equally technical studies, MacDonald P. Jackson claims that there are flaws in Vickers' arguments and supports the attribution to Shakespeare. If the poem was meant to be tongue-in-cheek and not intended for publication, argues Jackson, it could easily be by Shakespeare, who could perfectly well play at imitating the style of Spencer as he plays at imitating Gower in Pericles, and would do it much more easily than a writing master like John Davies of Hereford. There is no factual evidence that this poem is not by Shakespeare, and significant stylistic elements point to Shakespeare as the author. The lady and the man are not specifically identified, as they are in other poems of the period, but are generalized, one could say universalized, figures. There is a dense economy of antitheses. The wit of the reversal of expectations has much in common with that in Shakespeare's sonnets 129 and 130. And despite the formal structure of a lament poem, there is a powerful evocation of the attractiveness of the youth and beauty of the young man that seems to echo the sonnets. If the poem is by Shakespeare and intended, as many such poems were, to be a kind of coda to the sonnets, it can be seen as both wittily ironic flattery and at the same time subtle critique of Shakespeare's handsome and beloved patron. The young man's charms are so compelling that they can seduce not only innocence but also experience, demonstrating the power and irresistibility of love. The poem thereby becomes a fitting envoy to the sonnets in which Shakespeare has evoked all the facets of love and its sway over the heart of man. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. <laughs>